Hi, Paul Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. My guest today is Brigadier Mike Roycroft, who after a distinguished career in the British Army, uh, it now works in the charitable sector. He's CEO of the hospice. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Mike and his life. Please tell me when and where were you born? So I was born in Aldershot in 1951 uh, because my father was in the army. I was born in the Louise Margaret Hospital. It's incredible to think back, but in those days the army had its own maternity hospital. Really? What was your father in the army? So, he, well, he ended up as a brigadier as well. I take great delight in phoning up and saying, uh, Brigadier Roycroft, please. And uh, they'd say, yes, who, who, you know, who are you? No, that's who I am. <laughs> I, and eventually the PA got the hang of it, but uh, Charlie. But he, um, he was in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps, had started off uh, in the infantry, Surrey's at one point, and then did the Rhine crossing, Gliderborn, which was very hairy. And then went up through Germany, uh, lost a leg, or part of his leg, his right leg. Was lucky enough to transfer into the regular army, worked his way up, and as I say, eventually became a brigadier. And he was an inspiration for you, was he? Yes, uh, it, it's quite interesting to think back as to when I decided I was going to join the army, because sometimes I'm not sure I ever did decide to join the army it just sort of happened you just sort of slide into it but I I can remember talking to him and and him saying well what is it that you want to do in life that you can't do in the army so uh, I went to school I followed my brother into the same school I've got two brothers and two sisters so there's five of us followed him into just the local grammar school very unusual in the sense that I was a boarder there as my parents then scooted off to Germany. So I stayed at, at that school, did my um, O-levels and A-levels, decided that I would go to Sanders, so did the normal process of applying and then you go off and do the regular commissions board and then eventually went off to Sandhurst. It was, it was, I wouldn't say enjoyable all the time, certainly the first term and a bit of the usual ghastly business of, of basic training. Then you settle in and, and the, the thing that you have time to do in that two years is to start to learn the army, about the army and how it works and, and all the rest of it. Not, not the formal stuff because they teach you that, but it, it's the stuff that you sort of pick up by osmosis. And going back to your childhood and, and schooling, are there any memories that stick out? Of- really, I, I, I mean, firstly I would say I had a happy childhood. Uh, my aunt lived in Aldershot, and I can just remember whether Easter, I mean, it must have been ghastly cold, but uh, Easter and summer holidays were always sp- spent at the Aldershot Lido, and we just seemed to grab a bunch of sandwiches and head off at... The open air swimming pool, unheated. Pool, unheated, and, you know, I, I can remember thinking, oh, it was a bit chilly today, but, I mean, thinking back, we must have been mad. But it was just what, what you did, and... and uh, to be honest, I'm not sure we had. My father was, um, in those days, he was a captain. We didn't have much money. But uh, as I say, it, it, uh, it was good. He was, he was a very good man. He, he worked hard. 
But it was interesting that people would still say, oh, yeah, very fair man. I think that's something that uh, stuck with me, that, uh, you know, firstly, you have to work hard, but B, you can do well, but still be fair. Did you enjoy Sandhurst? The the first part I didn't. I think one of the things was, um, and it's probably not like this uh, at all now, but certainly just being the sort of, as some of them would have seen me as the grammar school oik, who didn't know anything about the army. I was up against um, people who'd been to public school, who'd gone to the sort of CCF system and and so on. Uh, And and it didn't matter the fact that they'd only been kids playing at it. The fact is they knew a bit of drill, they knew this. Whereas I came at it from from, uh, absolutely sort of um, step one, uh, and literally step one, I remember, Although I was the tallest person in the platoon, so that means you end up as the the right-hand man of the front rank. After my first two or three mistakes, I was then relegated to being left-hand man of the the back rank. Um, And then you went on and did a degree? Yes, I I was very lucky in those days you could do what was known as an in-service degree. So as opposed to now where people do their degree and then join the army. I went to Sandhurst, went off and did my first job in, in uh, Germany, which was very interesting, uh, and then went, went and, and did my, my degree. It was really so um, different. I mean, it, it's a statement of blinding obvious, but you, you sort of do it at Sandhurst and you're sort of in inverted commas playing at it. And then suddenly you've got real professional soldiers who suddenly turn around and look at you and say, yeah. Okay, boss, what are we going to do? And uh, that, that, that sort of brings you up. Uh, and fortunately, um, as a second lieutenant, which is what, what you are when you come out of Sandhurst, um, nobody had tremendously high expectations of you. And uh, you are given that time to learn. I, uh, no, I had a good time, played a lot of sport and so on. We were uh, based in Paderborn for most of the time, in, in fact. Uh, in Germany? One, yes, and, and that was the... Uh, time I think I, I, I was duty officer and one of the things you, you so we used to go to the cinema quite a lot and as duty officer you were allowed to go and even there was a duty officer's seat so that the usherette could find you in the dark and uh, I just went along to see the, the film that happened to be on that night and it was Zulu which had come out in the mid 60s. Suddenly I realised that most of the people in the cinema with me were Welsh and I, I to be expressed my ignorance, knew nothing about Rourke's Drift or anything else. But it became quite clear that they were taking this very seriously. Because and it was a Welsh regiment. At it it was. And it was probably the Royal Welsh, uh, uh, Royal Regiment of Wales. Various bit things would happen, they all cheer. But the, the thing which really got me was, if you know the film, there's yeah. a bit where they're, they're all on the fire steps and the, the Sergeant Major shouts out, you know, front rank sound. And every third rank in the cinema stood up. Now, they must have been sat there counting as to which, which <laughs> row they were in. Because literally, he said, stand. And they all stood up. And then there was this amazing thing where you, they go through this drill of, you know, front rank, fire, down. Just a, Middle rank. And they're all doing this. You know, the three rank, and all through the whole cinema. And then, I, again, Ivor Emmanuel, who's in the thing, and he, they say, right, come on, sing. And suddenly, I'm in this th- uh, cinema with 150 or 200, whatever it was, people singing this song. And I'm a sort of you know, cynical 20-year-old or something. I've got a big lump in my head. Yes. I mean, these boys, this is their heritage. 
as you say, from from there came back to uh, university, and of course that's that's then a, uh, almost a, a, a bigger change from coming from Sandhurst to a unit is going back dare I say it, from the army into the real world. And that was in Manchester, wasn't it? I was in Manchester, and, and I went off to do a, a degree called computation. Um, I went off and I did the hardware and the software and so on, but also things like accounting and sort of organisational studies, behavioural studies and so on. So it's, it's a very rounded thing, but with IT seen as an enabler. managed to um, pass that and left and went to my first job, which was a technical job. Um, so this was a computer system development wing in the part of the army that I had been commissioned into, which was the Royal Army Ordnance Corps. In those days, the military were leaders in the field. I mean, we, we had uh, some of the very, very first computers. And it was fascinating. I was designing the, the sort of real-time components of the second uh, system that we were going to install was um, still in the days of punch cards and doing um, things I mean kids these days would just it would be beyond their their belief that we would uh, be doing edits in our programs by splicing paper tape yeah literally putting it into a block cutting it and then sticking the two ends together and this sort of thing amazing and um, even down to the geeky bit that actually you could read it by eye to find out which bit to cut. So where, where did you meet your wife? So we, uh, while I was at university, actually to be uh, perfectly honest, on the rebound, having been dumped, um, I met this gorgeous creature and uh, she was working, she was in the army, she was uh, working at Vista and uh, we just met at a party. I was pretty wary, so we met in 73. She went off from uh, there to Hamel. In, uh, in in Germany, couldn't stand it without her, and um, she was coming home on holiday, and there I was in best suit, flowers, and proposed her in the arrivals lounge of Luton Airport. And you were accepted. And I was accepted, which is just as well because <laughs> we had about four hundred people cheering at the time. Uh, so you were married in seventy six, that 76, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, but then you you had um, a tragedy. Yes, we we um, we we were posted from where I was doing this computer job and um, Caroline, my wife, was, was uh, pregnant. Our son was born prematurely um, and I rushed down from Osnabrück to where, where I was working to where she was in Munster having been rushed down there. He was okay for a day or so. Uh, well, um, many hours uh, but just under a day um, he died you can never look back and, and uh, you can only take what's given to you and, and you know sadly he died it is obviously a huge thing I mean um, on the other hand our, our oldest daughter was born fairly soon thereafter and you look back and you say it, it's a matter of fact I mean we are would have had more children, but we wouldn't have had her. No. And the same thing goes on for, for our other children. How many um, children do you have? So we've got four, yes. um, and uh, now three grandchildren. But they've all gone into different things. They're all successful in their own ways. It is a difficult thing to deal with. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a Catholic, uh, as is my wife, and 
it does make you question your faith. I can see that both in terms of your faith, but perhaps in that context, more importantly, your marriage, it can literally be a make or break yes. um, thing. Um, I think it brought us together in a way. Talking about your military career, what were the what were the highlights and what were the the hairiest moments that you had? Well, I think the the in in my era, so we're talking about the sort of seventies and eighties. Of course, the the two big um, things that were going on were obviously the Cold War. So. Uh, when we were in Germany, you would go off and do your patrols along the inner German border, so-called intelligence gathering, which consisted of us taking pictures of them, taking pictures of us. But they would be in the watchtowers, we'd be patrolling them with um, uh, vehicles and uh, sort of surveillance kit and so on. I mean, it was it was serious stuff. Knew that we were certainly trying to hold them long enough for the politicians to sort something out, to avoid escalation because of course um, although the theory was that we could use tactical nuclear weapons and so on I mean I think uh, most people look back and as a lot of us thought at the time it, it's uh, it's like being a little bit pregnant once you start using nuclear weapons it just escalates out yeah. of control so quickly so most of it was people taking it very very seriously we, we had huge uh, formations first British Corps was out there but it, it was it was um, good um, in the sense that uh, we were doing a good job we were preparing for something that we rather hoped would never happen the other conflict that was going on from when I had been at uh, Santa so from the late 60s onwards of course was Northern Ireland how many tours did you do in Northern Ireland Two, two and a bit I'll, I'll say that so operational tours are the, what was called the Op Banner uh, things and then went back later on uh, for a, a two year or two and a bit year deployment. People forget how many casualties we took. People were just being blown up or shot or ambushed on a regular basis. Yes. Some of the numbers involved, um, I mean, the one point is that, you know, attack where the um, big culvert bomb under a, a lorry and so on. I mean, these were serious casualties. I mean, I was Royal Army Ordnance Corps, so I wasn't out um, on the on the ground all the time. Um, but we were in Belfast. You knew that you could be going along. Obviously, if you were in a, a military, obvious military vehicles, but even in the so-called covert cars, which we knew there were people spotting us coming out of the barracks, yeah. jotting down the number plates and. There were times when you'd be out there and there'd be shots flying around. And did you lose any of your companions or, or your, not, your not, in, not in my unit, but um, I certainly lost friends and people who I'd been at, um, uh, at Santos with. And certainly when I was in, um, that's very sad. Um, so those two great conflicts were both resolved. The, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and we had the, the Good Friday peace agreement. Well, so. I, yes, I mean, I think the... Uh, I, probably not the moment to discuss whether or not Northern Ireland has been resolved. Uh, bearing in mind Big improvement, you must admit. Oh, absolutely, yes. People are not actually shooting at each other um, very often. I mean, fast forwarding to, um, you, you, you mentioned sort of Berlin. I was eventually posted as the commanding officer to Ordnance Services Berlin. What rank were you then? So that's, that's Lieutenant Colonel, so uh, CO generally is Lieutenant Colonel. So and how many, how many did you have under your command? Well, it was quite strange, and in 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 uh, a way, it sort of is has been a hallmark of my 
army time that I had relatively few, and by that I mean probably 70-ish military, but had probably five or six times that civilians working for me. Remember going to a works council meeting, and uh, I was at CM, so I was clearly in charge, and uh, announced that we were going to do this, and the shop steward said, I'm not sure we are, Colonel. Um, can we just have a quick chat? And I was uh, taken to one side, and um, it was explained why we weren't actually going to do These were German nationals. These were it? German nationals. Oh, and they, but, had... but they, they, and, and it was the whole nine yards of the, the social yeah. chapter and you know EU law, um, uh, sort of labour law, and all the rest of it. And um, you only make that mistake once, and. Uh, decisive and making your mind up and deciding this is what we're going to do was clearly out. Yeah. There was a, a negotiation process. You had to consult. Uh, at the end of the day, I have to say they were very reasonable um, people. They understood. And we had a very good relationship. And, and that worked out very well because um, as I was taking over the job, the, the chap I was taking over from would have gone by the time I actually arrived. So then I arrived to take over from him and the wall had come down. In fact, you... the wall came down the night of his, <laughs> his farewell dinner. So could you claim any credit for that? Uh, not, no, <laughs> but a, you didn't meet some of the Russian officers. Oh, yes. We, we, um, it, it, was, it was just so historic. Um, we were there for everything. So the stack commandants of these, these were the general officers commanding the American sector, the British sector, the French sector, and notionally the Russian sector, but actually the Russians never turned up to any of the meetings, except that we got to this meeting and for the first time in however many years, probably decades, um, the Russian turned up because they knew that this was likely to be the last ever meeting and that the seats that had been carefully in all the writing pads and everything else had always been laid up just in case they came. The, the last uh, meeting of that, being there on the occasion of, of Charlie coming down and so on. And um, going back to the civilians, one of the, the things was that I was obviously closing down all the services that I had been running. And one of the things that we did was run a system called the Families, Families Ration Issue System. So this was designed to prevent the British being caught out by another blockade. So we held blockade stocks of food. And I I went along um, to tell them that, sadly, this thing was going to close. Basically, they were all out of a job. And uh, the chap who's the the direct line manager said, I'll do it. I said, no, no, I'm I'm the boss. They need to hear it from me. So I went and I stood on top of this pile of pallets, and there were all these people around in little groups around. I started to talk to them. First glance, I thought, nobody is paying a blind bit of attention. They're all in little gaggles having a chat. I thought, should I say, no, I'll, I'll just keep going. So I got to the end and, and saw them sort of faintly glum signs, but because um, I'd just in fact told them they'd all been sacked. But, you know, there's a little ripple in, and somebody said, thank you very much for, you know, frankly, having the courage to come and tell us yourself. And, uh, and I said to the chap who's out said, you know, I nearly told them to stop nattering. He said, I'm very glad you didn't. He said, they're all in clutches by language. And the people you could hear chattering away were all doing translation to their friends who otherwise wouldn't have understood a word you were saying. Uh So if you'd said, quiet, please, you would have been talking to about eight people. And the rest of the 300 would have 
wait until you'd gone and then said, so what did he say? Mm. So I uh, got away with that one. And then you became chief executive of a... Yes, it was, um, the, well, actually, there's, there's an interesting um, little thing in, in between those, actually. I, I came back uh, on promotion, uh, very lucky, um, uh, to full colonel and went into a branch as the decision had just been made to take the Royal Army Ordnance Corps, the Royal Corps of Transport, the Royal uh, Pioneer Corps, Royal Army, Catering Corps, and the mail component of the Postal and Courier Service from the Royal Engineers and put them together into um, a single corps, the Royal Logistic Corps. This was a massive change programme uh, and something that was absolutely fascinating to be in involved with. And though I say it myself, is is generally held up as a, as a case study on how to manage change and it was done extremely well. But one of the things that was going on at the same time was um, the, uh, the what was called the Financial Management Initiative. This was sort of post Maggie Thatcher introducing budgets and plans and all the rest of it into the army. They also decided that they would make these open competition. And by that, I mean that anybody could apply for it. So my first job as a brigadier, I answered an advert in the Telegraph. Um, rather than the traditional thing where you just got a letter that told you where you were going. And you were competing with civilians so, for that position? Absolutely. Uh, so I was um, the, the first um, internal candidate to win one of these. So all the others up until then had gone out to people from industry, various different uh, agencies. But, um, yeah, so I, I went off and um, it was very unusual because A, you, you are in this sort of semi-autonomous role, but also for the first time in, in years, I knew I was going to do a job for, for four years. And it was, it was a fascinating job. It was a, a, an agency that supported the Army, Navy, Air Force, and... Uh, How big an operation was it in terms of people or revenues? Um, or well, sort of um, about uh, 150 million uh, procurement and um, about, um, I'd say, probably... At its height, I think about 600 plus um, people. But and as as we were doing it, one of the uh, major things that we were trying to do, come as no surprise, was take out manpower and the, the computer. We were computerising a lot more of it. We supplied everything from literally at one end of the thing, all the sort of ceremonial uniforms, all the combat clothing, washing up gloves to MBC protection, you know, nuclear, biological and chemical protection. We also did um, general stores, which was everything from literally nuts and bolts to musical instruments and, and all sorts of, of things. That, that was uh, a fascinating job. Um, again, this was change and that, that was why I was, I, was uh, I think, probably uh, given the job was because we were taking 12 disparate single service organisations and civil service organisations and bring them onto a single site. Did you encounter a lot of resistance to the change? Oh, that was, um, th that job actually um, was probably the most difficult from the point of view of, of the change in the sense that we were closing down. So for example, we closed down the contracts branch in Glasgow. Now politically moving jobs from Glasgow to the south of England is pretty tricky. We closed down um, the research and development uh, facility in Colchester and and moved it to uh, um, Coversfield, which is near Bicester. I was answering letters to the Prime Minister and, and questions in the House and, and all the rest of it, all the time. It was literally trench warfare. 
but um, we developed a new tentage system to go into the Balkans and in particular into Kosovo. It was done in an, an amazingly short time that the development, had we not achieved that, then we would have been putting soldiers into tents that frankly hadn't changed much from the Second World War into Kosovo. And I think either they would have been ineffective or in the worst case, people would have been injured from mm. the cold. So it, it was a, a very interesting job. Again, very diverse. The majority of people that worked for me were civilians, again. When I finished that, I worked for the Adjutant General for a while. He, he um, was, at the time, the, sort of the, the top personnel man in, in, the, uh, in the army. While I was there, they tossed this sort of six-inch wadge of paper across and said, have a look at that. I don't suppose you fancy doing that. And it was a study that had been done by the Royal Army Medical Corps into uh, primary health care. It was a very, very thorough study, which had hundreds and hundreds of recommendations, just one of which was form an entirely new organisation to deliver it. I read this thing, or skin read it over the weekend and came back to yes, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. So one very relieved boss, and, and I was then appointed, the, in effect, the project manager to go off and create what was called the Army Primary Healthcare Service. Rather to my surprise, after about 18 months, they said, well, put your money where your mouth is. You know, you say it's going to work. We'll make it work. You're going to run it. So I was then appointed rather rabbit in a headlight moment as I became director of Army Primary Healthcare. And, uh, of course, I had doctors and nurses and, and physiotherapists and pharmacists and mental health experts and all the rest of it who actually knew how the primary healthcare was to be delivered. But I was there to create this brand new organisation from hundreds of little disparate um, groups all over the country. And uh, so we created basically a regional structure that built up to this um, national thing. I think the main reason that I was put in, apart from my experience of managing change and so on, was that I wasn't a doctor or a nurse or a physio, yeah. because whoever it was would always have been accused of favouring their own tribe, so to speak. So to have somebody completely neutral, um, uh, at times, to be perfectly honest, acting as referee, let alone um, uh, director, uh, was, was a fascinating thing. And I thought my future would probably lie in the NHS when I left, so, uh, because to all intents and purposes, I was running the Army's Primary Care Trust. Um, so when did you leave the Army? So 2004. So, At um, the age of? Uh, oh, no, 50. 53. Yeah. So, um, so I left early. So you have to go at 55. So I, I left earlier. I had background of care building, building up, and there was a charity, the White Homes uh, Trust, that I left to go to um, uh, that job. Did that for uh, almost nine years, uh, well, coming up to ten in fact, and then time for a change, moved on. Was in two minds to be honest, um, and this was back in uh, 13, so 2013, two minds as to whether I really wanted to work again or it's been, of course I got very, very bored very quickly, so I decided I did want to. A job came up, it, it's running a Catholic hospice, which in itself is very unusual, so St. Raphael's Hospice, which is in uh, Cheam in southwest London. And again, 
it was changed because the hospice was separating from a big hospital that it used to be part of. The hospital itself, St. Anthony's, was being sold. I was faced with the curious situation of creating a new organisation that had been running for nearly 30 years. But none of the uh, infrastructure, so that there was no facilities management or IT or HR or finance or it didn't have any of its own policies and procedures. It, it, it had always in effect just been run as a ward part of a bigger hospital. That was fascinating and it, and it built on the experience that I'd had from um, Whiteley uh, where we had done amongst other things um, residential nursing and end-of-life care. So I had a, a quite uh, a background in palliative and end-of-life care albeit as an administrator, obviously. So not as how many patients are there in the, the hospice? How many people do you look after? So we look after about a 1,000 uh, a year, um, which uh, will put us at sort of middle rank size of, of hospices. About 70, perhaps even now 80% of them uh, we look after in the community, residential or nursing. Is it government-funded or is it a charity? It, it is charity, um, and you touch on a... a a uh, good raw nerve that we get only about 20% of our funding. So the grind of the job is that we have to raise four and a half million yes. every year just to keep it ticking over. We face the same challenges that the NHS and, and other care providers do, that people are living longer, therefore they are um, approaching death in a far more complex way because they have um, many comorbidities as it's called um, so not only will they possibly have one or more long-term conditions um, that they've had for a long time but then something is is going to actually kill them so what's the, what's the biggest challenge that you face as CEO of that hospice money, money. It, it is just um, so difficult to really understand how something that is treating every person who is an, an NHS patient, and we get 20% of it. And, and some of the things that we've managed, although I haven't actually seen the money yet, but we've, we've had agreement at long last after all these years, we're in our 30th year this year, that the uh, clinical commissioning groups, as they're called, will actually pay for the drugs. So up until now, we've been shaking buckets and running marathons to Get the money. To get money, and and it it is hard, but um, the quality of the the care that we provide is fantastic, and and I I don't single us out. I mean, we are um, recognised as, as good, but um, all hospices do a fantastic work, um, job because they're looking after the whole person, and and this thing that Cicely Saunders not created, but but um, formalised this idea of total pain that you know, there are physical pains, but there's spiritual pain and there's an emotional pain and even practical pain. And, and it, it takes a while to understand what that means. Uh, but, but one example uh, was a, a gentleman who was dying but was very, uh, had great difficulty in communicating, but he was really, really agitated um, and clearly unhappy. Um, our psychosocial people were trying to support him and so on. And we couldn't really get to the bottom of it until somebody actually said, I know what it is. They went away, came back a couple of days later and went into him and said, we've made arrangements for your dog. This is what is going to happen. And it was like throwing a switch. 
although he couldn't communicate very well, he was worried about what's going to happen to his dog. It's this all-round um, care, not only for the patient, and, and you know, the NHS does, does as good a job as it can in that respect, but um, of course what we're doing is looking after the families and also their loved ones. So, you, Mike, you've done a lot of different jobs, senior jobs in the Army with the Homes Trust, with the hospice. Which job are you proudest of? What was your proudest achievement? I, I think, funnily enough, I think the hospice. Um, I, I, it, it's one of those jobs where uh, as I've said to people, if you didn't know better, you'd think there was a plan, in the sense that there are all sorts of experiences of managing change, of uh, the, the sort of background of care that starts off with sort of primary health care and, and knowing how clinical governance works and so on, and to then end up uh, in a job where you're applying all of this in one place and... Um, it sounds immodest to say, but sometimes I'll say something and people just say, how do you know that? And, and actually often I don't know how I know it, but I do. And of course the answer is, it's experience. You've yeah. you just picked it up over, you know, whatever it is, 45 years or something. And it, it, it does almost feel like it's been building up to this. So if you were giving advice to somebody who was leading change in a major organisation, what are the key leadership tips you'd share with them? The first one is communication. You have got to communicate the case for change. Why are we doing this? Now, they may not accept it. They may not agree with it. But if they don't understand why they're doing it, give them the opportunity to have their say. And it, it may almost sound cynical that some of the things that you, you are giving them choices in or control over are in the grand scheme of things, fairly trivial things. But they they see that they are part of it and it's not just something that's been done to them. It's something that they're part of. And and again, it, it um, when things go wrong sometimes, um, you know, I will say to people, you know, we're not the passengers, we are the crew. You know, we're on this boat, we don't want to go down, we're the crew, we've got to do something about this. Um, so I think that I think that's really important. I think that Certainly, I, I probably have a reputation for delving into the detail. Um, I do think you need to know the detail. You have to learn to try and not stick your um, hands in what, what uh, a previous boss of mine described as the long-handled screwdriver. You know, you do not want to have the situation where you're sat up at the top of the organisation with this long screwdriver that goes right down into the bowels of the engine is tweaking some screw somewhere. You know, that's not your job. But but equally, you do need to, and I realise I'm jumping around with my metaphors here, but there are times when you could potentially be on the bridge and you're sort of cranking a telegraph and it's going ding, ding, ding and all the rest of it. But actually, there's nobody at the other end. So you're having great fun on the bridge, but actually, you're not making any difference. So you do have to go down to the engine room and actually say, are we actually doing it, chaps? And it, it, it may sound sneaky, but I do occasionally, deliberately, start off a communication message, which is, quote, to be cascaded, and you go, and then I go and round the back and ask somebody, has, has the message reached you? And if it has, great. And they're, they're very happy that I've come to chat to them. Uh, but if not, I do go back and say to their bosses, you know, you were told to cascade it, so why the hell haven't you cascaded it? Everybody is playing their part. I, I, I think um, 
there are just so many stories, but the, but the, the old one of the uh, um, chap at Kate, I think it was Kate Kennedy at the time, uh, when the president turned up and, and somebody, and he goes over and says, uh, what are you here for? And the chap with the broom is sweeping the road says, we're here to put a man on the moon. And, and that was just brilliant because A, whoever was running the programme had understood that everybody needed to be on board and understanding what they were there to do. But the other point is, they bought into it yeah. and and they clearly communicated and you know when when we get inspections as we do care quality commission all these other people turn up and inspect you one of the things and or even just the staff surveys which we do every year one of the things that comes through every time is the inspectors always say everybody understands the vision everybody understands the values and they're all absolutely on board i mean they may have some problems with how it's being done and you know the fine tuning and the rest of it but they will understand that's the good. message and and that's that's really important mike roycroft thank you very much <laughs>